0: Welcome to Media Voices everybody, I'm Chris Sutcliffe and this is our Media Moments 21 launch special. I'm not going to take up too much time, we're going to get into it straight away, but I do want to say if you want to watch our presentation of this as it happened live, you can go and watch the video on Voices.Media. While you're there, you should also download a copy of Media Moments 21, our latest report, which you can get for free. They're both on the same page, so do head along to Voices.Media and download the report. But without further ado, let's get into the presentation and our guests. Well, thank you to everybody for coming on to this, the launch and presentation of the Media Moments 2021 report. Every year we take a look at everything that's happened over the course of the year. It would of course be a fool's errand trying to condense everything down into one report, where you're looking at those fools right now. And we've been doing that since 2018. Um, as we've done it, we've seen the media world evolve so much, even over the course of those three, four years. You know, even this time last year, we weren't thinking that we'd have to include something like an NFT category. But it's been changing all the time. And as a result of that, we do have to stay on top of everything. So in addition to our weekly podcast, which we do, we also do a daily newsletter as part of Media Voices. And beyond that, reports like this give us an opportunity to really examine everything that we talk about in more depth. It provides a bit of a snapshot. So as some of you might have heard there, we've done 12 chapters this year instead of eight. And we've taken a bit of a a fly-by-night approach to some of it. It was almost impossible to condense everything down into a word count, but we've done our best to provide as holistic and encompassing look as we possibly could at everything that's happened across the media world. We are aware that we have a blind spot in terms of um, geographical location sometimes and kind of some of those niche media, and we would love to write more about those. But uh, for the most part, we're really happy with this report this year. We think that we've got an absolutely... um, we were more optimistic than we were this time last year let's say about the media world when we were feeling quite down about it but as you'll see from this report which you'll all receive a copy of at the end of the session there's going to be a a direct link and we'll also email you um there is so much cause for optimism this year far more than we've seen in i think any of the other media reports we've done it would not have been possible for us to write about this without the help of our partners with what's new and publishing Uh, who've been fantastic in terms of support and actually providing us with a lot of the information. And of course, thank you so much to Sovereign for for sponsoring as well. We we could not do it without them, and they have, as ever, been a fantastic resource as well as partner. Um, So you might have noticed as well that we're joined by some guests in a bit of a departure from what we've done before. We are going to be hearing from four phenomenal guests who are going to give their take on what have been some of the most important moments from the media world over the past year. But for now, what we're going to do is the myself and my two co-authors on the report, Peter and Esther, are going to take you through what we think has been, I suppose, an interesting point from the last year, something that we really want to dig into. Uh, before we do that, I do want to say that myself and Peter want to say thank you so much to Esther, who, in addition to having written her sections, has also put the report together visually, which I know is no small task. So to begin with, that, I think I'm going to ask Peter to explain what he thinks has been one of the most important media moments from the past year.
1: Thank you, Chris. Um, I mean, Chris's point about this being a fool's errand is is really well made. Trying to take a full year of this market and sum that up in, what, 45 pages and 12 chapters is nuts. Uh, But it's never stopped us before. (laughs) Um, You know, the, the biggest one for me this year was advertising, the advertising market, because the narrative... I think for so long has been reader revenue and subscriptions and paywalls and it's all you know it's all about shifting to these stable <laughs> stable revenue streams. Uh, well, a stable revenue stream is only stable if you've, you know if it's still in place and I think more and more the subscription space is getting busier and busier um, and that has been countered by this kind of advertising I don't want to say renaissance that's like publishing people always fall into that golden age of bullshit which is which actually it is it's bullshit so it's not this a golden age of advertising but there is definitely a shift in the narrative Uh, Jacob Donnelly particularly has been talking about the the kind of the move particularly in newsletters with subs only evangelists you know the kind of all, bads are, all ads are bad, crowd actually starting to say, well, no, maybe maybe getting some ads in this isn't such a bad, bad idea. And Brian's probably got something to say about that later. Um, but I think the growth there is real. The growth is almost universal. You know, it's all 16, 17%, UK, US, China. Um, so I think that was that was a kind of high point for me. I think there's still loads of problems with with the advertising space. I think there's too many crappy ads and too many ads that, you know, we're still getting fooled in the web by toasters. So the, the whole cookie thing's got to get sorted out. Um, but that was definitely the highlight for me was to was to see that kind of return to advertising particularly seeing it as part of the mix you know we bang on a bit the mix of six all the time but seeing advertising come back into that mix of revenues I think this was was definitely the highlight for me
0: it's fantastic and Esther you have uh, a couple of things you want to point about subscriptions I know we're going to get into that in a bit in more depth in a bit but yeah you've pulled out some key stats I think
2: uh, no, I was going to pull out some key stats about subscriptions and then um, all the panelists told me they also wanted to talk about subscriptions. So I'm <laughs> going gonna, gonna to step back from subscriptions because um, I wrote the chapter on it. But um, actually, the, the one of the most exciting things I think for me has been um, the, some of the most platforms have made to make paid podcasting possible. Um, I know Apple, Apple and Spotify both, in fact, Spotify rolled out paid tools literally last week um following Apple's launch over the summer and I think when when it had launched over the summer it sort of passed me by um, can't think why but <laughs> uh, and then I was I was doing some research for an article I was writing on a media I sort of suddenly realized that actually they were they were already in on this they were experimenting with paid podcasts that, that launched a couple of things um M- M- you know we saw Empire had some success with the paid podcast they'd launched last year um Der Spiegel has rolled out an Audio Plus bundle this summer and I think the platform's Obviously, I know there's there's problems with going on and on platforms, but some of the tools that they're putting in place to enable um, publishers to start paid podcasts, that that I think is quite an exciting area, and I'm I'm really quite excited to see where that's going to go in 2022. That's next year, isn't it? Yes, we're 2021 this year. No, it can't be. Where's this year gone? (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's what I'm really keeping an eye on this year, and I was really excited about sort of catching up on what happened in the year.
0: Nice. and myself obviously it would be impossible to write about this year media without talking about e-commerce and so you know a few years ago i remember we were covering a conference for the media briefing and we heard about timing uk's plans around e-commerce and while they were mainly concentrating around sort of low ticket items and low-ticket verticals, it's plans to own every part of the chain from content creation to ideation to product recommendation. It proved remarkably prescient because e-commerce in 2021 builds upon that explosion in digital payment last year. But the brands that have been the key beneficiaries have been those with consumer touch points at every single part of the journey. Now, that's not particularly mind blowing it's something you'd expect from kind of very well established um, brands with expertise and kind of fingers in every part of the pie but as you'll see from the e-commerce chapter those brands effectively hold their consumers hand now from recommendation right through the funnel and many of the acquisitions we've seen this year have actually been a service of employing their expertise uh, in new high value verticals um we have also seen though as Esther mentioned there there's we've been burned by by p- platforms in the past and a lot of the platforms that are investing heavily in e-commerce are those that have a tech advantage over us in terms of how they actually reach audiences? I'm thinking about Snap using its, the way Snap talks about its camera as being the new keyboard, for instance. Um, people are habituated to viewing things through that world and even making purchases that way now. So while I don't wanna put any, I don't wanna pour a bucket of cold water on this, I do think that we need to be wary about how we're actually thinking about e commerce on platforms that we don't own and operate ourselves. Despite that, as you'll see from the e commerce chapter, and as I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, there has been such there have been so many success stories this year that it's really kind of buoyed my mood. It's made me feel much more confident about our industry's ability to make uh, make revenue from areas that depend upon our own expertise. So before we, well, I suppose before we discuss anything else, we should uh, talk about our panel. And so you might recognize Brian Morrissey, who is the ex-Digiday Editor-in-Chief, and he's now of the Rebooting Newsletter, and Brian, I believe, a podcast as well.
3: Yeah, just started one.
0: Fantastic. And Charlotte Tober, of course, of Press Gazette, who you'll know if you, well, if you exist within this world, you'll use Press Gazette as an invaluable resource. Thank you for being here, Charlotte. Thanks for
4: having me, Chris.
0: Of course. And we've got Professor Lucy Kung, who is the Reuters Institute. Lucy, we've worked together in the past, but thank you again for for coming here.
4: You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for
0: you, Mike. Of course. And finally, last but not least, we've got Dominic Perkins from Sovereign, who. As we mentioned at the start we would not have been able to put this report together without so thank you very much dominic
5: Pleasure. thank you very much for having me
0: perfect so actually charlotte i wanted to begin with you because we're going to talk about subscriptions briefly here and you as part of your kind of the remit the, the of press gazette take a look at who has been doing really really well on subscriptions just in terms of broad numbers so over the past year how have you felt around how our industry is actually marketing subscriptions you know providing consumers with good value for money from their subscriptions
6: um yeah i mean generally i feel like that's a that's an area where the industry is doing really well um uh we one of my colleagues has done this as uh, what he calls the 100k club where he's tracking how many english language publishers have more than a hundred thousand digital subscribers and that's um over 30 now um and it's sort of all the people you'd expect and I suppose some you might not expect to be so high so I mean New York Times um, I've just got it up I'll give you the top five New York Times, Washington Base, Wall Street Journal, Gannett, The Athletic Um, but interestingly Substack is now number six Um, so that's sort of shot up in terms of I think we're going to talk more about newsletters but um, that's sort of the raw power I think people are interested in it but um, I think generally there's been a real willingness to pay this thing from 2020 of people realizing they have to pay for trusted news like amid the pandemic I do think that's sort of borne out and steadied and and hasn't gone away um uh there are some some publishers were worried that um like after the initial boom of subscriptions in 2020 that um retention rates would obviously fall when if people had a trial period or um they or an initial offer that they would just not renew it. But actually I think um I think it was a Boston Globe we wrote about where um although uh, they did have a lot of cancellations, retention rate was about what it was a pandemic. So obviously you'd expect a certain number of people to cancel, but um by proving to them why um it was worth having the subscription and 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 proving that they are a valuable part of your life and sort of giving you engaging things every day. Um, that's how you do it. So like the telegraph as well, um, their main thing they think about now is subscriptions like above all else. And they've got this um star metric which looks at every article and how it engages subscribers. So it you know they don't think about page views but they think about are subscribers enjoying this and does it sign up new subscribers? So it's sort of just this whole refocus across the industry, which I do think is paying off. Um, And um, the other thing I was just going to mention was that um, I mentioned about the trial offers and stuff, but actually a lot of people decided it wasn't worth doing them and they'd rather have fewer people sign up and um, actually make money and actually engage those people rather than just having loads of people sign up for hardly any money. and so um, Hearst, for example, we wrote about um, stop doing these these discount offers, and and it really paid off. Like and the um, and they marketed their subscriptions properly, and it really meant that the um, revenue per subscriber went up. Um, so all these things are worth doing. Rather than just putting a subscription out there, it's worth thinking about. Um, you know, uh, how do we make sure they know it is valuable and and part of their everyday life.
0: And so, to the rest of the panel, then, have you seen um, a marked change in how uh, our publications, the kind of the, our, the media industry as a whole, actually is thinking about communicating that value exchange? Whether that is choosing to, you know, stop doing uh, huge discounting, or you know, by more regular communication about what consumers are actually getting over the past year, have you seen any major changes in how we actually think about how we reach our audiences and talk to them through subscriptions? And then, Brian, do you want to take that one?
3: Uh, sure. I will. Um, look, I mean, I think one of the things that's important to like realize is that just like compared to like, you know, several years ago, um, the idea of charging for access to content is pretty normal now. And it really wasn't before, except for specialty publications and a few exceptions. But now it's sort of expected to some degree. And I think one of the good things is that it has become a consumer habit. That's the good part. I, the, the bad part is that um, there's obviously a, you know, navigating the internet now is is you're running up against walls uh, everywhere, and so it's a different type of experience. And I think a lot of publishers are still, and again, it's hard to talk about publishers as a monolith, but a lot of publishers are addicted to piling up big numbers with discount offers. Um, you know, we just had Black Friday. I think we've exported Black Friday, but not Thanksgiving, which. I guess is part of the unbundling.
0: Yeah, we got the we got the worst part of it.
3: I it, well, yeah, I don't really totally understand that because I always thought it, it was like you know they they sort of go together, but that's okay. Um, nobody wants to eat turkey, um, and but everyone likes discounts, and so I don't know. I've just been bombarded with these one dollar offers, you know, for a year of of the athletic and stuff like this, and you know th- this is it's a difficult one because you know we talk a lot about trust and. Nobody likes it, you know. I I subscribe to the the look. Not nobody likes it. It's like a balloon mortgage to some degree, right? Like you, when you're paying a dollar a month and then it jumps to fifteen dollars a month or more, um, you're gonna end up, you know, rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, right? Because it's it's kind of a bait and switch tactic. And I understand why people do it. And the reality of of subscription programs is you have a lot of sleepers, you know, people who aren't really active at all and um for a lot of publishers it's like let's not let's not wake the sleepers let's make them call in order to cancel Um, it's amazing to me that like publications like the wall street journal still rely on that to keep um keep subscribers just make it uh hard actually to stop subscribing um that's going to end up being uh the ftc here is going to crack down on that um and a lot of it is it should be cracked down on i mean it's it's corner cutting and it would be great if publishers had more um, more faith in in their products. You know, like I mean, for Netflix, they send me they send me an email before it's going to be renewed, and um, I don't see that from a lot of publishers because publishers don't want to wake the sleepers. They want to make sure too many publishers, not all publishers, um, and I think that that's that's a weakness.
0: Oh, certainly, and Lucy, of those. Um publications that Charlotte mentioned at the start is there anybody who you think is doing particularly well I think Esther flags up a couple of them well more than a few of them actually in, in the report itself but who over the past year has really come into their own in terms of doing subscriptions well whether that be selling them retaining anything like that
4: well I think I kind of concur with the findings of your report I think the industry is in a much more mature and solid place than we would have expected it to be so I have I'm not really seeing kind of massive upticks what I'm saying is the whole system is getting better oiled, more mature. I'm seeing a shift towards, in terms of organizations, no longer looking at total subscriber numbers, it's average revenue per user, lifetime customer value. So the whole thing is just getting much more uh, sophisticated. I think where I'm still seeing the issue is kind of, uh, getting that thinking to penetrate deep into the content creation areas, especially. And I think that is the shift you're seeing in the kind of leading organizations. And I think it's going to, we're going to see that kind of percolate out through the rest of the organization. So I think in general, I mean, I I have come across really in all geographies, a large number of, you know, in India, in Norway, in the UK, in the US, really successful organizations right now. A lot of them, I mean, there is a split between organizations that are really good at creating a narrative about themselves and organizations that have kind of quietly got their job together. And I think that's one of our problems as researchers and writers kind of filtering, you know, getting the signal from the noise. So, yeah, I think there a lot actually are doing much better than any of us expected they would be.
0: I think Peter, in, in our latest episode, actually we spoke about that. You were talking about the idea that you know individuals who do who market themselves through Substack have a much clearer story to tell in a lot of cases than than some of the publications.
1: Yeah, I think it's just tighter. They're they're kind of they're themselves by definition. And I think that if they've got a solid proposition, then that makes it easier for people to sell that proposition. I've got a question for Dom. Actually, um based Dom on your past experience just that idea of the change internally you were at immediate before that's right, right yeah? yeah that's right that change internally away maybe from the advertising focus to the reader revenue focus was that stark or, or was it evolutionary or how did that work so
5: <clears throat> again I've, again i've been. Uh, here at at Sovereign for just over three weeks. So I've still got my publisher hat on. So yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, the pandemic was great in some cases. To your point earlier, from an advertising point of view, we had a very successful period of time. Immediate has specialist titles, food, entertainment. Obviously everyone was trying to to, to engage with those. I think one of the things we noticed from that, and not from the media point of view, but from the, the market in general, was in some cases it was a very short-sighted revenue claim to try and, you know, boost the revenues from around the business from advertising. So people went the opposite direction to where we should be going and they put more ads on their pages. Immediate did look at it from a, a less is more perspective and that really came through from the subscription dialogue that we were having with our publishing teams and everybody else and, you know, looking at it from a, a publishing point of view at that point What we're looking at from Sovereign is how can we help companies or publishers understand the value of their content, what works well so they can reduce the ad load, if you like, and have a better user experience. And that was something that was driving immediate media subscription policy. How do we get a much better user experience because people, you know, there's a a value exchange. So, you know, we're trying to help people understand the value of their content. Whether that's from an ad, whether that's from a commerce uh, or an affiliate link rather than advertising, what works for that consumer? Because then the churn is going to stop and you're going to have better engagement. So that's what we're trying to do. And certainly that was the the, the kind of golden egg that they were trying to unlock at a media. What what is that balance? They still have to make money. And does that subscription revenue make as much money as as, as advertising brings in for them?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. They've got to have, I suppose, a very wide-ranging eye across all that kind of stuff. Um, one thing that we we touched upon very briefly before was this idea that you know individual newsletters now are basically skyrocketing in terms of interest, the number of people who are doing it. Obviously, I'm sure that most people who have seen that uh, Farah Store has left out to join Substack. At the same time, we've also seen a couple of notable reversions back from individual publishing to going under the aegis of a larger publication so Charlotte I wondered what your kind of take is at the moment on newsletters as a force both for publications and for individual journalists
6: yeah I mean I think for publications uh, they're massive and um it's interesting I I write something in uh, 2020 actually which was like um email newsletters are this really good way to engage with your readers but a really old school way of doing it that for some reason people had not actually been doing that much for ages but now obviously everyone's doing it and there are so many newsletters it's absolutely overlaid um but um interestingly i think it's mentioned in your report um the telegraph um decided to reduce its number of um newsletters just instead of just doing loads it's better to do a few really well and actually um uh make sure that your subscribers like them and will keep coming uh, you know and we'll engage with them um so yeah i mean and uh at press gazette even our our sort of main way to engage with our readers is our um daily newsletters so um i sort of know it from first-hand experience as well um yeah in terms of individual writers i think it still remains to be seen really um i do i do worry that um everyone's very excited about it but i think it's a bit like podcasts in the sense that most of the revenue goes to you know just the few on top um uh, that you know the few most successful ones um and so it's all very well for people to say oh there are all these amazing newsletters and all these amazing podcasts but if if a very small percentage of people at the top of the table are making money then um is it working
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely if if you're not in that 0.0001 percent then absolutely so Lucy what then does what then if we don't talk about the individuals for now what is the kind of the current state of newsletters for publications Uh, Charlotte mentioned that we're kind of cutting back at the time oh you're on mute sorry
4: newsletters once you've got the automated system in are painfully easy I mean you can just you can just vomit them out endlessly and I think that has that has been a problem right so I think a lot of organizations are doing what the Telegraph is doing and 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 kind of filleting it down and focusing it um, I think to pick up on the point that Charlotte just made, I mean, the media industry, the creative industries have always been winner takes all. I mean, with Hollywood films, with classical music, with it publishing. I mean, that that is actually the dynamic in the industry. If there are a lot of mud against the wall, some sticks, and a, a little bit of that mud become the next JK Rowling's or whatever. So I think we're never going to break that dynamic. But what I do think actually the growth in podcasting, the growth in newsletters, it's it's really pulling out a, fundamental shift in the media which is it's really another another stone that's being taken out of the mass media concept essentially I mean what we are seeing I think across the board is that consumption is shifting from generic to specific you know there's various um really prime real estate in terms of very interesting areas that really have traction with audiences that advertising or advertisers are interested in are being kind of plucked off and by uh players who are doing either newsletters or podcasts or both, um, who are very dangerous, I think, to mass media players because they offer both speed and depth. And you can see, I mean, that the, the sort of generalists are now having to decide where where are we going to focus our energies right now because we can't can't cover the whole waterfront. And I think that shift from generic to specific is going to continue. You look at Axel Springer's purchases. It, you know, it's not trying to buy News Corp, it's trying to buy uh, Morning Brew, it's buying Politico, very specific players in a particular vertical where there's the option to go, you know, B to C and B to B as well.
3: Yeah, I would concur with that, with, with what Lucy said, because I mean, we're definitely seeing a flight to niche and, and to verticals. Um, and I think newsletters and podcasts are interesting because they're kind of examples of a larger shift going on just in general, um, from institutions to individuals, you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of trust loss over the last um, decade plus really, and I think it's normal for this, this phase of media to to go more towards individuals because people end up trusting people more than they do faceless brands, and I think that has a lot of advantages. For individuals, um, and so I think newsletters and podcasts are both very personal media in some ways because they're usually um, tied to a person, a personality, or a person. And I think that's one of the big advantages of it—just the fact that most, you know, email newsletters are basically web pages that are sent to um, uh, an email address. It's like at the end of the day, that's what it is. And, um, and the question is, why is it? you know working so well and I really do think that it's um it's because it's very much tied to a person and so you know I think it's more valuable now to have um you know a narrower but deeper audience than it is to have like broad fly-by-night audience and this is just part of that overall um trend
0: yeah certainly that's that's been a trend we've been seeing for years Charlotte did you want to say something
3: yeah sorry I was just going to add
6: to what Brian said that um uh, it's interesting because um, I think publishers had sort of slowly started to realise that, that newsletters were a way of building a more specific relationship. Um, and we've spoken to somewhere, uh, The I, for example, they started to make the newsletters more um, tailored from a particular person within the organ. you know, like the culture editor or um, and the New Statesman, and the political editor, it's very much... Um, based around their personality, even though it's a branded email. So then it it does make sense that the next step from that is for the writers, obviously, to be like, well, why do I even need the brand? They've built the newsletter around my voice. So it does make sense. And um, it's just whether um, you sort of, I suppose, they might not think they need the publication for the profile and the um, uh, audience, but maybe they do still need it for the money.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I I think you're right as well. I saw that the kind of the Rishina Connor, who's the music correspondent for the Indie, has kind of off the back of her newsletter, which she does from herself, but kind of under the aegis of the parent brand has now launched, you know, Spotify playlist specifically for subscribers and everything. It's a really interesting... it's a really interesting dynamic where you have those individuals within an organization who are almost acting as ambassadors, I suppose, for the brand itself. Uh, I promised that we'd rattle through this because, you know, just as our report does, we can only touch upon everything for so long. And so, Dom, I wondered if uh, we could talk about some of the biggest MA activity that you've seen this year. Obviously, and I'm going to set you the chance of trying to do this without mentioning the, the name Future.
1: <laughs> oh, right.
5: Okay. Look, I think Future is on everyone's um, lips from a publishing point of view. But at the same time, you know, there's been some really interesting um, uh, acquisitions, again, uh, from an ad tech point of view. We've seen um, uh, Outbrain recently, again, acquiring um, uh, video technology. So you can see companies diversifying what they're up to and where they've been. And, you know, joining Sovereign, um, recently acquiring Monetizer 101 from an affiliate network point of view it's you know to me it allows publishers to look at how they diversify their revenues and that's really what publishers are trying to look at at the moment it's a really clever way of being able to give publishers the tools to do that understand the value of their products or their 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 audiences and dedicate content uh and monetization towards that so you know they're the kind of things that, that we've seen um from other Publishers, yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot more happening, um, certainly in 2022. I think you're right, you know, from a specialist point of view, I think that really does bake into a publisher that relationship um, with their consumers. Um, To to add to a point just quickly before we go on to that in more depth, though, about um, newsletters, I just think to that point, I think. Publishers do have to be very careful about how they define those newsletters from metering and things like that. There's little, to, to Charlotte's point with the Telegraph, there's little point in having millions and millions of email addresses um, other than from perhaps an advertising point of view, um, if you're going to be sending out loads and loads of emails which aren't really required or wanted. They've got to be wanted to be engaged with. It. And I think engagement is a really important part. And again, the other thing from a publishing point of view is know if you are registering users you've got to be really transparent with the um with the rights that you're asking for at that point and i think sometimes that can be a a go slightly amiss from publishers um when they're thinking about the future of what they could do with that um with that relationship with the um with the user um so yeah that would be my points
3: obviously we've seen god Amount of consolidation going
0: felt a little bit ridiculous. Uh, so Lucy, in terms of kind of those huge, the sky high valuations and the kind of the m activity that's happened as a result, what's your sense of what's going to happen over the next couple of years? Are we done with MA activity for a while or is this just uh, kind of the, the next step in the process? No? Okay. It's, it's, better, <laughs> right. it's, it's going to
4: accelerate, it's going to accelerate because I think once you've kind of done the digital homework and you've, you've kind of got a beautifully executed digital machinery, you kind of have this horrible realization moment where you realize average revenue per user on digital is just a fraction of what it was in the old days. So if you're serious about your content creation or your newsroom, you've got to find growth from somewhere. And that is actually acquisition. So I think, I think there will be, I think acquisition MA activity will continue. I think there's two really interesting things there underlying that development, what you're seeing is actually a kind of an acknowledgement, that growth is coming from non-core activities. Actually, they might subsidize the core media activities, but the growth is coming from non-core activities. And you know, even if you look at the New York Times last year, their growth was in the um the cooking and the puzzling apps, right? You know, it wasn't in the kind of newsroom. That that was the bit that added the financial growth. And I think the other problem for the media industry is it's really hard to do MA well. There was a there was a report last year from McKinsey, um, which I, d- I didn't have a chance to dig into it, but they found that you know that the, the they put this sector together, technology, media, and comms, but it was bottom of the league table in terms of how good it is at MA, right? Um, so you know, the average return was kind of minus 2.2. What they do well are the big deals. So I think that's why I'm sorry I'm mentioning future, but future is clearly has a is really, really good at MA, really good at acquisitions. And it's 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 a very complex area. So I think that's really the issue. I think there will be more of that, but I think um you can as this mckinsey report showed you can lose as much value as you create it's absolutely not a silver bullet but yeah i think we'll see loads more of it because you t- where is the growth going to come from it, as everyone's gone more digital there's this realization we need growth from somewhere else now
0: yeah absolutely and uh brian's departed and left his big ghostbusters tower of books there so oh no he's back right. <laughs> so brian yeah i just wondered what this sort of uh uh, you uh, it's, yeah. to...
3: it's Miami there's like they just like come into our apartment so sorry
0: <laughs> no okay well we should dig into how people can just walk into your apartment for a little bit probably but in terms of M&A activity Lucy made a very good point that kind of growth is going to have to come from somewhere in a lot of cases that is going to be M&A
3: yeah. or it's going to be those kind of tertiary activities yeah but I also think you know like in the beginning of the pandemic um, I remember it was told to me like but it was obvious that like you know, the get stronger, stronger, and, you know, the weaker, weaker, it exposes weaknesses and stuff. And we've seen, you know, in the early parts of the pandemic, we were looking at like, a- another Great Depression, right? But like, governments somehow got their acts together and flooded the market with tons of liquidity. And so there's a lot of people sitting on a lot of money, right? And some of it, you know, we've seen in ad tech, a lot of people going public and stuff, and that becomes a good, um currency in which to scoop up, um, you know, extra, extra uh, resources. And so I think we'll see that continue um, because, you know, you talk about future and here like dot dash kind of similar companies um, and they have models that work. And so they can like, once you get a model that works, you can use MA in order to scale pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, I think, I, Chris, I know you said you don't want to talk about future, but I, I think you you can't in this conversation. I mean, if you look at their turnaround from five years ago, when they were making virtually nothing, and then you, you look at the turnaround that company's done, and, and most of that has been through very smart acquisitions. Um, and I suppose you can sort of, well, in the chapter, I kind of compared and contrasted this to, to Alden, which has gone the opposite way and is you know buying up all these properties, cutting them, squeezing them, and and then sort of throwing them out the other way. But I, I think one of the, one of the things that this year has shown is that post-pandemic, media properties are still really desirable targets for investment and acquisition. Um, you know, Axel Springer paying a billion dollars for Politico. You've got Buzzfeed that I think is due to go public any day now that, um, you know, they're being valued at 1.5 billion. Um, I I do ask this question with with these companies and and I know when, when Dennis acquired, um, their, um, car comparison website and, you know, future acquired go compare at what point do these publishers, but what point is publishing not their core business? Um, At what point is commerce their core business? At what point is retail their core business? At what point is price comparison their core business? That I think is going to be quite interesting in the years to come. At the point that, you know, half of your revenue is coming from e-commerce, are you a publisher anymore?
4: Uh, if I if I can jump in there, I think that's a huge issue, actually, because I think, you know, I've, I've been trying to revise a textbook I wrote on strategy in the media, and it's been a complete nightmare because the media industry doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, so many of the really, it's actually full of non-media players, whether it's Apple and Amazon, who are big actors in the media as a way of acquiring and retaining customers for other products. And then what you see particularly, this is linking up the newsletter issue, but you've got a lot of say finance VC consultancies coming into the media. So McKinsey, A16Z, um, JP Morgan is buying a lot of newsletters. And essentially for them, they can control their message. It's incredibly cheap customer acquisition tool. So we've got an awful lot of big players in the media industry who are not primarily media companies. The content creation is not their raison d'etre. And I think that's going to be, in a way, I think for people working in the media industry, that's actually going to mean growth, more opportunities to work in other sectors. But I think it is a really profound transformation to the media industry, you know, and all the concepts of mass media. is It's all kind of gradually evaporating i think and it's becoming a a very strange conglomeration and if you bring in there the whole creator economy as well which i think is where there's going to be a huge amount of growth that's different again
1: if i think back to the conversation that i had with aaron Asadi at future mentioning future again uh, for Aaron's, the, the, Aaron's the e-commerce, uh, the head of e-commerce at Future, and he, Lucy, I agree with you, you know, at what point are you are not a media company anymore, but he put huge emphasis on the content operation there, because that was what was driving the sales, that's where the sales were coming from. So if you're writing reviews, you have to write good reviews, you have to write credible reviews, you have to write stuff that...
2: Okay, Keep okay. Back but,
1: to but point of trust. At what yes, point do right publishers agree. start... Guys, this, is, <laughs> this <laughs> isn't the
0: podcast. At what I can't point, you what talking over one another.
2: <laughs> at what point do publishers start becoming basically marketers for Amazon?
0: <laughs> okay, well, look, oh, Tommy, you're, you're, you're about to I think, Dom, you're bound to have a sort of a, a, a look at that about sort of wider e-commerce strategy, I, I imagine.
5: I think that's the point. That I, I agree. I think content owners, why shouldn't they be able to become, you know, driving people through that funnel? And why shouldn't they be able to offer alternatives to Amazon? You know, there's a there's a huge amount of that. Lots of people, look, you know, we were looking at this at, at the media. How can, we, how can publishers create their own You know, one of the things that's come through the pandemic is this ability to shop locally. They don't want to shop at Amazon. They want to support local. So why can't you create a retailer network based out of local suppliers? And that's something that publishers can do. And, you know, again, I think what the company future have done is a very clever way of being able to build that whole stack out. And, you know, I think you'll see more and more of that happening, whether it's companies publishers taking on the technology and building out that retailer network themselves to support the local um uh, manufacturers and retailers i think it's a great idea
0: and charlotte i think it was end of last week or maybe earlier this week you wrote about kind of the, the independence results and they're talking about kind of there's, there's still room there for e-commerce growth uh, they see a lot of headroom there so to what extent then, is this something that we're seeing across it's not just magazines it's not just kind of individual sub-brands this is across the entire media industry our newspapers you know going to be the big beneficiaries of e-commerce based on their trusted reputation
4: yeah
6: i think people think of it less at newspapers but actually if you think about the sort of thing that they do seo pieces around that is where they are directing people to amazon and you know um i think more and more people are doing these christmas and black friday lists and stuff and it's all there and yeah as you say the Independent's got this indie best bit which um in a way is just a more obvious version of what others are doing they just um i think others just sort of do it a bit more piecemeal whereas the independents like this makes money we are doing this specific thing um, and it is working and yeah as you say um their chief exec is very clear that that is he that's going to be one of their big growth areas for next year because they have really lent into it and are just doing it properly um, i think where um where you're all talking about um at what point do you, media companies stop being media companies um, i think the only question that raises for me i think as dom says it's well within all their rights to publish what they want and share links to amazon if it's going to bring in revenue but um i think the concerning thing potentially is um for uh, newspapers not for magazines is um obviously they st- We sort of rely on them for public interest news and if they are leaning away from that for to not see themselves as a news company to see themselves as a tech company with a bit of news strapped on like um you sort of obviously that's great if they are using these other revenues to um to enable them to do that but if they sort of get distracted i think that might be where the problem lies
0: yeah there's a there's a little bit of a perverse incentive there to kind of shift resources potentially it's something that i know that we're going to be keeping an eye on while well, all of us here and i don't doubt that if we do this event next time this time next year we'll be chatting about e-commerce again but will we be talking about nfts so peter you uh, on the podcast you have have been skeptical i would say about nfts <laughs> and their, their role in kind of revenue generation in newspapers wow. and magazines.
1: I'm sceptical in the same way that I'm sceptical at any Ponzi scheme. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're a flash. In, I'm not saying NFTs aren't something that's going to be around for a while, but the way they're being used at the moment is an absolute flash in the pan. Um, you know, it's a fad. The Economist does a, does a story about uh, crypto and NFTs and sells its its cover and makes £400,000 for charity. Well, that's brilliant, great, but they're not going to do that on a regular basis. So I think where, where, where NFTs get interesting, and Brian actually just wrote about this uh, to, in today's newsletter, where it gets interesting is if there's actually a use case that builds up around it. And, you know, I read a piece uh, Oh, I can't remember who wrote it. doesn't matter. It's talking about uh, the future of the music industry and actually people owning a share of the recordings that artists are putting out. And the same thing could apply to magazine industry just as easily. And I think yeah. that's where it starts getting interesting. We've got that kind of ownership type thing going on. But the way it's been used at the moment, nah. I mean, it's just you know, the, the the one of the leading crypto coins at the minute as a friggin' meme based dog coin so that's where we're
0: at i feel like that's at least half of them
1: i don't know brian you've just written about yeah us. yeah i'm
3: not as big i mean maybe it's it's living in miami i'm not i'm not as uh, skeptical i guess i mean i understand why um peter you're skeptical and, and probably a lot of people are skeptical because there's a lot of nonsense with the crypto world and it's really difficult to understand and um it's like a lot of hot air and hype and whatnot but i think the the principles of it make a lot of sense um again like the you know the loss of trust in institutions and so to decentralized individuals makes a ton of sense and to try to establish trust in a different way not having an intermediary or gatekeeper also just makes a lot of sense in the media world if we see what happened with facebook and google and whatnot so all that stuff makes sense i think the problem is to Peter, um, to Peter's point is a lot of people are talking about theoretical possibilities and the only sort of tangible things seem like gimmicks, you know, like um, selling a NFT of a cover um, is, is mostly a gimmick, it's like a short-term thing. But if you think of M- NFTs as like a membership card and we think about moving, uh, you know, we talked about the shift to like sort of niche into communities and stuff like this, you know, moving from audience to community is one thing, but when the community then has like a literal stake in um, the um, in in the endeavor, I think that changes um, things completely. And so you can start to think that, hey, this could be something real. Um, and so I do think that there will be like any revolution, it will mostly fizzle out, <laughs> but uh, and disappoint. But I do think that that this is has a good chance of being a new a new technology paradigm um they do
0: and would the would the incident with the correspondent have shaken down as it did had they forced people to buy nfts as proof of membership
3: Yeah, no, that could have worked, but I mean, you look at like Board Ape Yacht Club and stuff, and you can start to, if you look at, I would encourage everyone to sort of, you know, just spend like a few hours, like really understanding what what Board Ape is doing, and try to apply it in your mind to to media, and you can start to see a pretty powerful a pretty powerful model like emerging um, because NFTs where you just buy a JPEG and you tell people I own this or whatever is kind of uninteresting. But when it un- unlocks access, and um, I think it gets pretty interesting. And that's where NFTs are going to go, whether it's an NFT or 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 a token. Um, I don't think that that's, that's more like details and stuff. But I do think that when you start to have you know, rights associated with it, and that allow you to contribute to the community. I think that's that's kind of interesting.
0: Very nice. And so I suppose that we are sort of rapidly coming to the end of the discussion. I wondered if I could go around and ask the panelists and my co-host actually something that they are most excited about for next year. You know, this time when we come to share the report, Media Moments 2022, is there one thing that you're looking forward to seeing develop over the next year or that you hope we talk about that's kind of something that's come to fruition so uh dom do you want to kind of kick us off with that
5: uh, I, I one of the things that, that i was thinking about for, for next year is is i want to see this experimentation that publishers have been doing carrying on i think them, you know moving forward as they're doing trialing new ways to commercialize their content you know and one of the things I, I just wanted to quickly ask brian actually one of the things about this token opportunity that was going through my head when i was looking at the um uh, uh, uh MFT, MF, mfts rather was could you sort of acquire a cover that unlocks or that there is a token for search in the future so it removes or you have to be paid if you look at that uh bit of content so for example could it could it be the front cover of the sun from years ago, Freddie Starr ate my hamster, bought by someone? And every time someone search for that, they get a they get money back for it or whatever it might be. And then does that mean that front covers of magazines and newspapers become a lot more exciting than they ever used to be, or that they used to be, which maybe we've lost recently? You know, it's they're the kind of things that I would love to see publishers experimenting with and looking at new ways of. Making engaging with people, but making revenue from.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. But I, th- to me, like the big thing is like it could bring scarcity back to did to really for the first time to digital media. I mean, digital media's great strength is its great weakness, um, which is that it's limitless. And and when when things are limitless, the value of them um, tends to go go down. And so I think we've seen that with you know the. With the ad industry, you know, became limitless, right? And and I think when it was chasing cookies, it it particularly just completely devalued the value of audiences. But I think we're seeing the shift um, that's happening right now back to content, back to context. Um, like Lucy um, w- was talking, like you know, places are rising and falling based on the quality of their product more, right? And so like a lot of times, content, honestly, and too many publications was overhead Um, and a lot of content creators, I I feel like felt like they were cogs, right? And so now when you shift to subscriptions with the flight to niche, with things like what's going on in crypto and stuff, you could see a world emerging where there's way more focus on the actual product, which is the content, right? And I think a lot of times over the last several years, people have been chasing after incremental revenue streams and really losing sight of what business they were in, right? Which is creating, really high quality content um that means something to specific groups of people I, and that are ideally communities
0: and actually Brian, why don't you take it what's uh, what's kind of even beyond what Don was talking about there what's your one great hope i suppose for 2022 in terms of the media
3: yeah i mean just like that i mean again publishing is like you know there's all sorts of different publishers but if you look at the most successful publishers out there and they all have different models they all focus and double down i hate that term but like on like on the content and that's where the investments um take place um you know if you're trying to cut costs constantly and and cutting newsrooms and stuff and we've seen this with local newspapers and stuff your product inevitably suffers because that those are the people making your product right and um the 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 examples, the positive examples, are all people who have disproportionately invested in the content that there's, that is their product. It's not like revolutionary, but I just hope people take this this basic um, uh, uh, point and apply it. Nice.
0: And Lucy, I know you focus a lot on kind of digital transformation, Do and it's a process. It's not like we're, we're ever going to be finished with digital transformation. So to what extent then do you think we are, I suppose, ready? And what are you looking forward to to seeing emerge from that over the next year?
4: I think the, um, the development, picking up on Brian's point about content, I agree. Uh, there's a really dynamic area of content emerging, which I think sinks so tightly into the kind of commitment and passion of the industry and is a kind of really strong base for kind of differentiating yourself and that's what uh I was talking to someone in india calls active content and this is content that really this is a news organization really trying to become the pulse of its community so you're talking about you know um uh trying to make a real difference uh advocating being activist you know uh, someone described it to me as being the eyes and ears of the community and i think I think we're seeing a big explosion in that, and the organisations that are leaning into it are seeing a huge response in terms of engagement, in terms of commitment to the organisation. And I think it's actually interesting. It's coming a lot in in Asia, and I think it will come up. But I think certainly for say local local news, which has been so compromised by the current environment, has suffered so much. This is an obvious positioning for them, and I think it's it's a fantastic return to kind of the core of what media should be about and interestingly the pivot to subscriptions the pivot to focusing on readers it's a kind of natural extension from that so I'm really hoping that's gonna that's gonna turn into a wave.
0: Nice fantastic and Charlotte then what's one I suppose one hope that you you have for the media industry whether that be about anything that our panelists have mentioned or something entirely new?
6: Yeah, it's sort of similar, very similar to what Lucy said in that um, I just hope that publishers don't forget what they've learned and what their readers have told them over the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, lots of them have been focusing on building this relationship and everything, but um, sort of, I know I know it's always too early to say as we emerge from the pandemic, but um, I just, um, I don't want, I, I think it would be a real shame if they sort of squandered that and, and let subscriptions lapse and and didn't, uh, really nail in what it is that that got people on board during this time um especially um in digital subscriptions as we were talking about earlier
0: it's fantastic thanks so much and just before we do the end I just do I talk to Esther and Peter every single week but I do want to sort of gauge what their great hope is then for for the next year Esther do you want to go first
2: yeah I'll go first because mine's actually kind of related to those previous two nice. um we didn't write about this in the report um but I'm kind of I'm really hoping it'll be a section next year and I'm hoping it sort of takes off next year but um it's it's the sort of it's the small people it's the local news publishers it's the small organizations that are popping up in areas that um that sort of you know big news organizations organizations have fallen out of Um, I'm thinking you know Manchester Mill um places like that and um this is probably a bit of a shameless plug for an episode we've got launching at the start of next year, which is going to look in depth at um, a couple of case studies of some of these small organisations in the US that have um, basically started up because journalists got fed up of the way that businesses were being run, and they've gone and they're sort of really, really getting down to the ground on what's happening in their communities, and they are they're starting to get to the stage where the business models are really working for them, and I think if they can nail that, there'll almost be this sort of I'd love to see this sort of renaissance in really small scrappy publishers getting the business models that really work for them
0: nice fantastic and peter you presumably want more people to be on snapchat
1: absolutely and TikTok, uh, buying nfts <laughs> buying uh, crypto shiba crypto <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I i kind of the, the, the best line of this, or the best phrase to come out of this, this session today is, is this flight to niche idea, and I love that. I love the idea that people are getting focused, focusing on niche content, which ultimately lets people focus on niche revenue, you know, BuzzFeed, SPAC, IPO, who cares? You know, it'll be great for people that have got shares in BuzzFeed, but... Is it going to change anyone's life? Probably not. So I just think this, you know, echoes what Esther's saying, this flight to niche, small, honest to God, publishers really doing some great work. And when I say small, I don't mean tiny. No, i just, I mean, you know, even like the New Statesman group, Charlotte, the stuff that you guys do, you're not the biggest publisher in the world, but you do really, really important work, either whether that's a Press Gazette or the New Statesman. So I think that kind of level of publishing, I hope is going to find a level where people are actually, you know, they've got, a, they're making a living and they're doing well and, and doing really good work.
0: That's very optimistic. That's not like you. But my, my, I suppose my hope for the coming year is that this time next year, we, we get to come back and have another chat with our fantastic panelists. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a chat about what you hope is going to be the future of the year and to discuss everything that we wrote about in Media Moments 2021. So to those of you in the audience who've been uh, following along, either via this or via the uh, Interactives uh, live blog, which the students of City University are doing, please do um, Read the report. It's it's available now. Esther's dropped a couple of links in the chat. Otherwise, it's going to go to your email. Um, it's been. I was going to say a labor of love, but it's really just been a labor. But ultimately, like I said, it's <laughs> it's really been, uh, it's really been an optimistic, I think, way of looking at the future. So, many um, voices. Give, Chris, Chris, Chris,
1: can I just give a shout out to that interactive interactive's Twitter thread? That is amazing. The work that these guys are putting up.
0: Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely any, yeah, brilliant. They're very good. Um, so, yeah, we are Media me
1: Voices. Made sound quite intelligent at <laughs> <a> points.
0: <laughs> so, Peter, Esther, and myself, we are the Media Voices uh, team. We do a podcast every week. You can search for us on your favorite podcast uh, channel or by going to voices.media. We also do a daily newsletter, which you can sign up to for Most Important Stories for the week. Um, thank you so much for What's New in Publishing for actually partnering with us on this. It would not have been possible without you. And the same for Sovereign as well. Um, you can see more of what those guys do going to Sovereign.com. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming along. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss Media Moments 2021 with the panel. And thank you to everyone who stuck around for the entire thing. And thank you so much.